Julia, can I ask you a personal question? I'm scared, but yes. You're a psychologist, right? Yes. Okay. So I'm glad you're here then because I need your help on something. Oh, God. <laughs> um, no, it's not that. <laughs> oh, my God. JJ, shut up. What is it? Okay. So this has come up before, but in two of the three adult men I taught yesterday did this thing, and they're both improving players, like a 1,000 to 1,400 strength, did this thing where they played a move that was just really not in the spirit of the position. I think in both cases, it traded off a lot of pieces when they were already down material. So the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do, right? And in both cases, I asked them what their thought process was in making that decision. And both of them said that they knew they were worse. And so they wanted to do something aggressive. And the first person who said it, I was like, oh, that's funny. I've heard this word before and I've heard chess players talk about this word and I have some thoughts here. And then it came up again an hour later. And I was like, oh, you know, I really want to talk to Julia about this. I think at that point, I literally sent you a message and was like, we're talking about this. And the reason why is because, well, several reasons. One problem is I just straight up disagree with the idea that forcing moves, clarifying moves, simplifying moves are aggressive in chess. But then I also take issue with the idea that aggression in itself is a goal that is good. And I also wonder how aggression within chess, the game, ties into the social cultural space that chess is outside of the game. I guess, especially in terms of like gender, it's like, can everyone just be super aggro, whatever that means to them, and then create a truly communal space outside of it? Right. Like, can we compartmentalize that? Are you obsessed with chess, but also kind of fun at parties? Do you keep your opening prep on your bedside table right next to your feelings journal? Welcome to the Chess Feels Podcast, the only chess podcast dedicated to the social and psychological aspects of this game we know and love. And hate. Tune in every week to join me, professional chess teacher and amateur feelings haver, JJ Lang. And me, professional therapist and amateur checkmate finder, Julia Rios as we dive into our shared love for the game and attempt to answer the most burning question for every chess obsessor. Why are we like this? Yeah. Just to prove that I'm not making this up, some quotes by the great Dr. Ruben Fine, who was, um, he was a psychoanalyst. So that means he was like a therapist, but better than you, right? Oh my God. Why do you try to rile me up like this? I am not taking the bait on that. Well, he was also a grandmaster, which means he's better than me. Uh, um, (laughs) Okay. Okay. As long as he's better than both of us. But he had some really good quotes about chess and he had some chess and psychology books written in the great era of the forties and fifties, which from what I can tell is when we understood the most about the mind and it's all been downhill since. Oh, do you have a comment there? (laughs) Yes. The, the Freudian era continue. So one quote here, this is relevant to the topic. Chess is a contest between two men, obviously, which lends itself particularly to the conflicts surrounding aggression. So that's a kind of interesting quote because it's so vague. The conflicts surrounding aggression, I'm not even sure what that means. It's not even the same as chess is a game where two men try and punch each other in the face with their brains. But then then there's another cool one that I just thought is a good tone setter for the kind of era we were in here, which is 
The profuse phallic symbolism of chess provides some fantasy gratification of the homosexual wish, particularly the desire for mutual <laughs> masturbation. So, oh yeah, this is this is real. Okay, this is 1967 in the psychology of the chess player. DJ, so, can you can you repeat that quote more slowly? Happily. <clears throat> <clears throat> The profuse phallic symbolism of chess, mm-hmm. that means dicks, provides some fantasy <laughs> gratification of the homosexual wish. That's like gay sex, particularly the desire for mutual masturbation. That's like when two people, Julia, they love each other very much and they. JJ, yeah. you're full of jokes today. So how do you how do you interpret that quote? Um, as this as a guy who. I would not want to play chess against after reading it. But the idea is that both of those quotes are essentially presenting chess as this profound symbolism for aggression or mm-hmm. sexuality and positing. That's what attracts people to the game. I'm not sure. Yeah. And and I, I, I like that you talked about the interplay of those two quotes as well, because taken on their own, I think they both sort of make sense. Like I have also described playing a slow game of chess with somebody who's of a similar level as a really interesting form of intimacy in the sense of you mm-hmm. really trying to get inside their head and see what they're seeing and think about what they want. And so in that sense, like the leap from that to some sort of fantasy gratification or desire for mutual masturbation isn't crazy. I don't I don't think that's what I was thinking of at all, but like I see the leap from like, oh, this is a very intimate shared experience yeah. to that. And I could almost see that as an attempt to reflect kind of what you're doing in a game such as that of essentially trying to create this art in a way that maybe even feels self-indulgent or mm-hmm. both trying to perform in such a way that does feel, I don't know, what's the right word for that? Like self-congratulatory? Yeah, because the goal is ultimately to get yourself off still, right? You're thinking about the yeah. other person, but only in as much as it behooves you. Totally right. Yeah. Like it is really still self-focused in that way, but you're doing it together and you need the other person to create that. You actually can't yeah. do it on your own. Um, you could use a computer or a bot. <laughs> I'm sure there's some parallel. Chess light. Oh my God. Okay. JJ, you can't say that. That was really funny though. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. We're cutting that out. Yeah. <laughs> that is hilarious, but inappropriate. Um, Available for purchase on chessbills.transistor. No. I see what you're saying that you can sort of understand like what he's tapping into. Yeah. The idea of the phallic symbolism stuff aside, I just sort of get that. And then yeah. the aggression on its own makes sense, right? Like, I think that there's a famous Bobby Fischer quote, which is like, chess is war over the board. The object is to crush the opponent's mind. Right. Korchnoi was famous for kicking Karpov under the table to distract him to the point where they had to put a wooden partition in between the two players. So it's very common to hear people talk about wanting to crush their opponent or destroy their opponent or dominate them. And I know this. Yeah. there's a connection between aggression and dominance in the literature that has been assumed in the past, which I'm sure we, Julia will talk about. So in that sense, I also understand why, yes, something about chess as a metaphor for war, yes, that's been talked about for ages, chess as the desire for dominance and aggression, sure. But then the interplay between those two is very confusing to me. And he just might be, I mean, maybe these are from two different sources, right? These are two quotes that I pulled and put together. They're not meant to be read together, but there's something I think super interesting here about what at least on first glance appears to be 
tension between these two ideas of chess as a mutual, maybe ultimately self-congratulatory, self-indulgent activity, but a mutual one versus chess as an adversarial one, as one where the goal isn't even so much about something like pleasure, but of destruction or aggression. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like we even see this on a colloquial level in chess spaces, the way people talk about it on Twitter, on social media. You do see people saying things like, I absolutely dominated. I killed my opponent. I crushed my opponent. Oh, oh, one interesting variant of that is I think that's also a reason people get such perverse joy out of the swindle or the flag from a lost position, including me. You really do. (laughs) It's so great. But like, it's one thing to crush your opponent by like genuinely out strategizing them. Yeah. But how often does that happen, right? Especially in faster time controls. Not once for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can think of one time for me, but you weren't there. I'm going to need you to elaborate on that later. (laughs) But I think part of the pleasure comes from knowing that as crushing as it would be to just decimate somebody, we're not Bobby Fischer, we're not doing that start to finish against players. But what we can do is know that by the nick of time, you find that one desperate move that destroys everything they've built up. And that is perversely satisfying in a way that I think definitely ties in. But wouldn't you say, JJ, in Mm -hmm. those scenarios where you feel like you wiggle out of a lost position, Mm -hmm. I have never experienced that where I found the one move that collapses everything my opponent Uh built because I'm so smart and brainy. I feel like it's like my opponent blundered and I capitalized or my opponent flagged in a winning position. Yeah. Thank you for saying that, because to be clear, I'm not feeling so proud of myself or like into myself in those moments. Yeah. Or like the exception might be if there's just the one move, if it's a very difficult move to find and it's very complicated and I play it knowing that it works. If anything, I feel a little proud that I found it correctly, but more relief that I happen to be there because tactics are supposed to flow from a superior position. So finding those desperados, you have to view those a little bit as luck, as like, you're just fortunate that this was the one in 10 or whatever, that there was the desperado and you can be proud of yourself for finding it, but it's a lot different than, you know, you outplaying your opponent for 30 moves. And that's why there is the tactic that you earned. Yeah, totally. So I think the pleasure kind of comes from knowing how they were getting so much out of outplaying me the whole game. And then suddenly this one thing happened, not because I'm so great and smart and found it, but it's almost like the the devastation or something. And that's why I keep using this word perverse to describe the pleasure that comes from it. If it was just that I thought I did something really good, that's not perverse. Right. Yeah. You do seem to enjoy that, JJ, more than anybody else I know. Yeah. Which has made me enjoy it more too. But I I hear what you're saying. That's not really the thing that we see people sort of promoting or bragging about online. It's Mm -hmm. always the game where it's like, this is my immortal game, right? Right. I, I crush my opponent from start to end. It's about the domination. Yeah. And I understand the desire for that. He says, not really sure whether he understands it all. So where does that desire for that come from? (laughs) I think we can understand that on some level. I mean, when we're playing, you want to win, right? And I think a lot of people who become hooked to chess and who stay, it maybe kind of self-selects for people who have more of a competitive nature because the people Mm. who get more enjoyment out of winning and, you know, quote unquote, crushing their opponent might be more likely to stick around and want to play the game. Sure. So there might be some of that, or those people are just more vocal and have kind of become more of a dominating voice, no pun intended, in the cultural (laughs) space. Mm -hmm. So These things are super possible. I mean, people who are playing really quiet positional games, it's not flashy, right? It's not as exciting. And there might not be as loud of a voice promoting that style of play. Boris Gelfin, who has a bit of a reputation as a more 
passive or positional or quiet player has a series of books that all have misleading titles because they're just pretty much all game collections with annotations by him and Agard. But they're very good books. I think the first one's like Secrets of Positional Play or something. But mm. he includes a game against Morozevich, who is, uh, I mean, still is, but at his peak was a top player, but incredibly flashy. So like Morozevich is one of like Gopal's favorite players to look into for cool. opening ideas, right? So very different than Gelfand. And in the like in shift to the game, he's more or less laments how Morozevich's flashy improvisational or off the beaten path attacking style would always generate or attract more fans than Gelfand's own play. It's almost like a plea to find Gelfand interesting too in this almost like <laughs> yeah. very cute self-deprecating way while also acknowledging that like, I understand why people see Morozevich and are like, this guy rules and they see my games and roll their eyes even though like he's playing really good chess. Yeah, I wonder too, JJ, how this kind of ties into a previous conversation we've had about things feel more rewarding when they're mm. tied closer temporally to the mm. queue. Oh, so I okay. do wonder if there's something to that, how like more aggressive, quote unquote, tactical, aggressive yeah. play, you kind of get that instant gratification where when the tactic works, it feels really good. You get that dopamine rush. Yeah. The quiet positional play is that slow grind, right? And I do wonder if there's even something neurochemically that feels slightly less satisfying about that mm-hmm. and sort of, you know, underlies the fact that it generates a little bit less buzz. I love that. And I'll leave the neurochemical stuff to the person who does research. But additionally, I think that the way culturally folks talk about satisfaction in a way is often tied to this like moment of climax in a way that better tracks the tactical shot and finish. Whereas there is this one culmination of a couple of moves and everything pays off. And then you can go back and appreciate the moves that led up to it, or you can appreciate how the resulting position was won, but it really is about that one moment. And I totally believe that there's something neurochemical too, but I think we're just also kind of taught to like want those moments, right? We want the guitar solo that erupts. We don't want the 30 minute piece that loops back on itself and references itself. And that's the kind (laughs) of subtle satisfaction of it. And so you see an 80 move, Korchnoi squeeze them out victory, where there's not even so much a brilliant move or the brilliant move only comes in when the other side just made a blunder. But the whole thing is just restrict, restrict, restrict. And there isn't any one point to go to. And it's harder to be excited by that. Yeah, totally. And there is something more exciting about that climax versus Mm -hmm. a slow burn, right? Right. And I think it's easier, it's easier to see too and easier to share. You know, kids today and they're uh TikToks and their Snapchats. Um, (laughs) I am, but like, but it's also, it's something where if I'm showing a game to a friend, if there's like a tactical shot, I know they'll immediately see the exact reason I shared it. But if it's something where it's like 50 moves of just very good chess that slowly build on an advantage, there's a decent chance that they'll be like, I'm not sure why you shared that. Or even if they're like, that was sick, they're not going to be like, oh yeah, move 31. That's the move. And it's harder to even share because it's like, if you did that, I think you would have loved doing it too. But I don't think you see it just from seeing someone else do it the way that like you see the sick tactic and you're like, yo, that's dope. I'm going to put that on my feed. Could we argue though, JJ, that we're being over reductive when we... Us? (laughs) 
no. us when we sort of simplify this idea of aggressive play in chess mm-hmm. to those flashy tactics. Yes. Could we sort of expand what we see as our definition of, of aggression to include that slow grinding positional play that sets our opponents up to sort of slit their own throat, right? And mm-hmm. make the blunder. Can I say something that's controversial, but also brave? <laughs> of course. Those moments that you're describing of those slow moves that keep building the pressure and keep the possibility yeah. alive are a better example of aggressive chess than anything forcing or tactical is. Right. And I feel like that's how you wanted to actually frame this conversation. And right. I feel like my students are seeing this one thing as aggressive play mm-hmm. when actually it's pretty maladaptive. It doesn't work very well. And I'm not even sure that this is what I would describe as aggressive play. So how would you sort of define that, JJ? Yeah. So I think that trying to talk about something like aggression as mapped on to the tactic strategy divide, especially since I don't even know what the tactic strategy divide is, sure. is going to be mistaken. So we're not going to try and give a story of this is why this strategic idea is more aggressive than this tactic. I'm not trying to do that at all. But my thought is that if the goal of playing aggressively presumably is playing for checkmate or playing against some sort of concrete weakness, right? And that means when you're attacking, you want to use all your pieces. So the more pieces you have, the more powerful your attack can be. And the more possibilities your pieces have, the more lines and squares they have open to them, or the more your opponent's pieces are tied down and unable to generate counterplay, the more effective your attack can be. So if we accept that aggression has something to do with playing attacking chess, which I think is a reasonable assumption, then aggressive moves are moves that keep your pieces on the board and keep the potential alive. Even they're not necessarily moves that make the most threatening or forcing or trading option on the board. They're moves that say, oh, my bishop on C1 is not doing anything, but I don't have pawns on dark squares. So I'm not going to trade it off for their active piece who doesn't have anywhere future to go because as the game goes on, eventually one of these lines for the bishop can open up and coordinate with something else. And so just playing bishop C1 to D2 and letting it sit there might be more aggressive then a bishop g5 pinning move, but then they play h6 and you have to trade it for the knight and your quote unquote aggressive move, your pin just led to a piece who had a lot of potential on an open board being traded off. And I think a lot of people think of aggression as more of like, I'm making this forcing move. Are you going to let me make this trade? But that's not an aggressive thing. That's clarifying. That's getting closer to an end game. That's getting closer to a position where it will be harder to attack. So unless you don't think that bishop was ever going to generate any threats on this board, maybe you have a lot of pawns on dark squares and you're just trying to get rid of your worst pieces. Maybe that's aggressive. You're freeing up your position by getting rid of one of your problems. But a lot of people will think of any trade like this or I'm down material. So by making threats and offering trades and stuff, they have to respond correctly. They have to do something. Or it's like, no, you're down material. So you figure out which of your pieces still have mobility or can flock towards the king in the future. And you slowly do that. To use another chess example without a board, I was looking at someone's game where they had blundered a piece, but their opponent's king was weak on the light squares and a queen trade was offered. They knew they didn't want to trade queens because they were down a piece. But the only move that kept their queen on the board was a terrible corner move like queen b7 or something, where okay. it would be on closed lines, very in the corner, out of the way. And so they traded queens because they didn't want to be passive. 
That was like, right. That was their explanation. That was their explanation. And I thought it was okay. No, but now it doesn't matter that your opponent's King has weaknesses around the dark squares because you're running out of pieces to attack her King. Right. Um, if you keep that queen on B7, you're keeping the potential for it to go from B7, which is a light square to C8, which is a light square to H3, which is a light square. And you also have a light square Bishop who comes to F3 and then you made on G2. So what's passive at all about keeping the potential for a mating net against a weak square? And am I saying that's going to happen? No, I hope not. You're down a piece. They should have an easy time stopping that. But it's way more aggressive to just have your queen sitting there saying, now you have to keep an eye on these concrete threats I have, rather than trading it off and saying, well, now at least I don't have a passive piece. It's like, dude, that piece could give checkmate on that square coordinated with that other piece. That's not passive. Yeah. Now your position is passive. Yeah. JJ, that rings so true because even in psychology, I feel like there is this delineation of our empirical understanding of aggression. And this is not my area of truth expertise, but we do sort of think of it as instrumental aggression, which is considered as occupying more of that cognitive space. You can think of it more as this sort of cold, calculated aggression. And it's almost more what you're describing of that positional play. Like I'm acting with a lot of thoughtfulness Mm. in a way to best serve to my advantage, even if it doesn't have that fiery passion that we normally think of as aggression. And we can compare that to something like hostile aggression, which is taking up maybe even more of that emotional space. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. This feels like that aggression and it's more overlapping with constructs like impulsivity and frustration. And I think you can kind of see how that flavor of aggression might actually be way less conducive to playing a really solid game of chess. I knew there was a reason I wanted to talk to you about this. You're (laughs) smart. I think what you're describing perfectly maps onto this because you know that feeling of I'm losing, so I'm going to chuck everything at the king immediately. Now, what are you chucking? How much were you losing? What's the result? Sometimes you might be really fucked. They might have a huge attack and it really is now or never. And that's exactly how you should play. But if you're like down a pawn or something or even a piece, but their position isn't making any real threats, is throwing everything away and making the most far reaching moves as possible, where chances are all you're doing is giving up material or trading material, making it harder to get anywhere. That has that very emotional thing of like, okay, I'm losing, but at least I played H4, H5. And that might be something, JJ, that you Uh could even really kind of share with your students. Uh I know that this feels aggressive. And when you feel like you're backed into a corner, you want to find something. You're going to do the desperado move. You're looking for a tactic. But I want you to think about what aggressive play could look like in a way Mm -hmm. that is not so emotionally centered, Mm -hmm. which might actually distract or take away from your ability to play the position in front of you, which we keep coming back to time and time again. I love that framing because what I will usually do in those conversations is try to encourage them to reframe anything that could lead to trades or anything that could lead to clarification, especially when they're losing. Yeah. To rephrase it as like a docile move. And uh, one of the people I was yeah. talking to yesterday was like, I told you that this was an aggressive move and you told me it was actually a docile move. He's like, honestly, that really stung. That's going to stick <laughs> with me. Not like in a bad way. I feel like JJ too, you and I sometimes describe it. We'll be like, oh, that move was really flaccid. <laughs> I've used flaccid. I've also described, I guess this was slightly different, but you got really mad that time that I described part of your play as ambitious. And a few hours later, you were like in the shower and realized it wasn't a compliment. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, you do? Should I remind you more? (laughs) On a regular basis. 
<laughs> you do that all the time. You'll be like, that was ambitious. And then I know that what you mean gently is it's actually almost exactly what you've just described. Of, yeah. That was ambitious. I know you were trying to do something, but actually it totally missed the mark. Or not only it missed the mark because you should have tried to do something different or you should have tried to do something just as ambitious, but better, but because it's almost why were you trying to do so much so fast, right? That can maybe come up in a case where you're not worse, you're not losing. And it can be very difficult there to resist a really tempting, you know, Bishop takes H7 or something, which oftentimes will work, especially if you've outplayed your opponent. But to be like, okay, but I also have a really nice position, period. So why am I trying to win the game? I think in a Sasha Chapin's book about returning to chess as an adult and trying to learn, he talks about taking lessons with Ben Feingold, who gives the suggestion that um, the secret to chess is that you have to play the game as if you never want it to end. Wow, that's so beautiful. And especially when you're not worse or you're ben. winning, you know, you, yeah, yeah, I know, right? Friend of the podcast, <laughs> although he doesn't know it, but he does follow both of us. And we would love to have you on Ben Feingold. Yeah. And Karen too. Yeah. Oh, that <gasps> would be such a good episode. I know we both have the same light bulb. JJ. <laughs> <laughs> Me and JJ have been talking about, we really want to do an episode about chess and relationships. Oh, we got to get Ben and Karen. Yeah, that would be so good because uh, at first we were going to try and get our spouses on, but then they just always seem to be mad at us for playing too much chess. And we're like, <laughs> we can't really, we don't want to give them this power. I like how that's a joke, but it's literally not a joke. <laughs> I was not making a joke. You just started laughing. It is funny. <laughs> but yeah, anyone who is in a chess power couple, whether you are both titled players listening to this for God knows why both noobs or have any sort of mismatch, especially if y'all aren't straight, please reach out to at chess yeah. problem and at chess feels pod <laughs> to um, schedule a time to come on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but back to your quote, JJ. Mm -hmm. Oh yes. Yeah. And so not necessarily, he's saying that those moves that are just trying to keep the game going, he's not even framing it in terms of aggression, but there is something to be said. And this comes up in some of Silman's stuff as well. There's something to be said about reframing it as the reason why I'm trying to keep the game going isn't because I'm just hoping you'll blunder or if I'm passive long enough, you'll get impatient. It's because if I can see any value, any potential in the pieces that I have, then why am I trying to sack them all off to end the game immediately? Right. Why am I not trying to just keep this going? If I think that this piece has more mobility than yours, or if I have more targets that are easier to attack than yours, I don't need to win them. I don't need to find the combination to win them. It's your job. So I think like the fine gold point is just that you should really enjoy being able to build and build and build on that. And then somebody like Korchnoi, who was very strong at squeezing out the counterplay of his opponents, I think got, got a closer to kind of what I would call a perverse sense of joy of squeezing any chances out and yeah. playing in this way where it's like, my goal isn't to get so much counterplay or so much attack that I beat you quickly. My goal is to keep some semblance of attack alive for my pieces, some space advantage while restricting you out of anything active you can do and get getting this joy. And I think there, there's something that can still be thought of as aggression in the sense of like, this could still lead to gross things culturally. So we're not just saying that, oh yeah, if you stop this idea that aggression is just this emotional thing, you've solved all the social problems around aggression. But someone like Korchnoi is somebody who his aggression wasn't, I'm going to kick your ass tactically and throw everything at your king. His yeah. thought was like, I don't need the biggest attack possible. As long as I have anything I can do and I can work more and more towards giving you nothing, then that is me 
kicking your ass, right? Of course. And I mean, that really strikes me because I know how much room there is for that in my own chess play. Even as you're (laughs) saying that, it's like, Mm -hmm. wow, I'm not doing nearly enough of that. I'm so focused on what are my plans and what do I want to do? Where do I want to direct my aggression, right? And I'm not thinking about what are my opponent's plans and how can I spend my energies thwarting those it's hard, right? I mean, it's yeah. or at least on first glance, it's hard because it sounds like it sounds like the suggestion is you have to do even more work. But what right. you start to realize as you get more into it and more used to doing it is that if you already know what your opponent is trying to do, it becomes much easier to know what your candidate moves should be candidates for. It becomes much easier to rule out moves because, oh, yeah. that actually just facilitates their plan. And right. it becomes so much easier to figure out what you want in a more accurate way because instead of having to judge, okay, well, this move would allow a trade. I don't know if that's good or bad. Do I want to play this? If the first thing you figured out is your opponent's worst piece is the dark square bishop, then any move that flashes into your head that lets them trade it off is just ruled out. And it got so much easier to figure out what you do or don't want to play. But yeah, I wanted to talk about move 15 in that game you played last night where you played knight d5 instead of knight h5, just because they both had this idea of eyeing the weak f4 square and the d-pawn couldn't move without being captured. But the knight on h5 coming into d4 was going to be sick, or coming into f4 is going to be sick. So playing d5, let them just snap off the knights. And then your rook was there. But I was like, just this idea of like, no, like, even on h5, that knight's going to be a beast on f4. If they have to sack the pawn, your rook's going to be a beast on the open d file. Why are you letting them just get rid of a mediocre knight on c3 for a knight who could have been dominant on f4? And just kind of like, and so the the thought there was just seeing you had two paths to f4 and you went for the one that centralized a piece and allowed you after the trade to centralize a rook. But what I wanted you to see was that the knight itself could have been a force. And that alone is a reason to rule out the move that would allow them to trade it off. Yeah. Damn. And I thought that that was such a slick one too, because we were even chatting on the side, JJ, and I was like, Oh, I feel like that was smooth (laughs) because I loved the night there. It's it for all the reasons you just described, like it's outposted. I have an open file now for my rook. I was feeling great positionally. And if the knight could have stayed on D5, I would have been like, why the hell are you even considering knight H5? But like Bigfoot is like, because this is a slick knight, why am I looking at a move that lets them get rid of it? Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's such a beautiful example. And what I particularly like about that is that we do sort of have this at least I do, averse reaction to even putting a knight on the H file. Like, oh, I it don't want my passive. knight. It looks passive. It looks passive. It's sideline. Yeah, yeah. Right. This is, this goes against what I've learned. And I feel like so much of that process in learning chess is taking all of those rules that are so helpful when you're first learning how to play chess and really figuring out, yes, this is a great rule of thumb, but where are those situations? And there's many of them mm-hmm. that I need to be more creative with my play. Yeah. Or just having that sense of like, I know that the knights belong in the center and are more powerful there, but just knowing that like, oh, I see how this knight has potential attacking in the potential. future yeah. means that suddenly moves that keep it on the board, even that violate the principles of being immediately yeah. aggressive now are better than moves that follow the principles, but take away its potential via a trade. And, and that's why I think so much of even this conversation boils down to how much maybe when we think about quote unquote aggressive chess, mm-hmm. we are sort of overvaluing or overemphasizing threats and we are Good. undervaluing potential. 
Yeah. Because with threats come this idea for this craving for clarity of being able to see things through to the end or almost this idea of control because you can just calculate rather than to have this vague feeling of whose pieces can outperform each other's which is a much more difficult thing. I was telling one of my students, you see this where a lot of old main lines and sharp theoretical openings like the Nidor for the Grunfeld start with very big forcing moves like the poison pawn variation of the Nidorf. The bishop comes out to g5 hitting the knight on f6. The queen comes out to b6 hitting the hanging pawn on b2. And now top level, these variations are shied away from because so many of these incredibly forcing concrete lines have been calculated out to perpetual checks or forcing repetitions or just shown to have a definite one side has this plus. And now instead of this big Bishop G5 move, the new theoretical frontier in the Nidorf is the move H3. And then I'm saying these things with the hope that even not looking at the board, you know that Bishop G5 is attacking a piece and you know that H3 is probably not. So the idea of this being a way to play for a win or being more aggressive or more confrontational almost is we're taking away so many concrete forcing lines that can be used to analyze concretely and see if they can bottom out in a draw. And you're keeping so much more potential and flexibility on the board. That's also why you'll see like C4, B3 or something played at high levels where issuing all of the stuff that has been quote unquote known or worked out and going for something that is much more abstract, you're keeping alive a lot more potential for your pieces to play aggressively. And that's why something like a London system where you're playing it, not because you're going to play the same eight paint by numbers moves, whatever they do, but because you're just trying to get out of theory while developing pieces and whether or not you play C3 or Knight C3, whether or not you play Knight F3 or Pawn F3, those sorts of things kind of gives you what Gopal is called like a canvas almost where you're able to just figure out what your potential is based on how they play. And that can be much more aggressive than, you know, playing a King's Gambit where you just have to hope your opponent hasn't memorized theory yet to move 30. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I think the one thing that we haven't touched on or that we've alluded to, but I definitely wanted to talk about is what aggression in chess is or can be or is thought of. And we've talked a little bit about how this relates to aggression as we understand it more broadly. So I guess the other question is, when we think of aggression, especially as this sort of emotional tear, crush, et cetera thing, and we think of the kind of people who are attracted to that, you mentioned they're probably competitive people. Maybe, yeah. But beyond that, those don't sound like people I want to hang out with all weekend. (laughs) Yeah, maybe not. That's kind of a question I was also thinking about asking you, JJ, is how this conceptualization of chess as a deep aggression, as a metaphor for war. How do you see that kind of seeping into the chess culture as a whole? And what impact does that have on the people who occupy that space? It's hard. I don't think there's an easy or clear binary answer because, I mean, I've definitely seen like, I think Aronian and MBL were leading a blitz tournament or something, and they're just sitting at the board before the game starts just talking, telling jokes, enjoying it. And then the clock start and immediately the smiles are off their face. And this actually seems like a case of like, these two guys are friends. They have a relationship and then they get on the board and it's there. You see this a lot in other sports where like yeah. players, certain players have a lot of respect for each other, but it doesn't, if anything, it makes them want to kick each other's ass even more. Yeah. So I definitely don't want to draw this bleak conclusion. It's like, oh, if you want to dominate me and destroy me on the board, then you're just going to be a dick to me off the board. That's not true. Yeah, because I mean, I even want to ask you, JJ, like when we play each other, 
Mm-hmm. On some level, I would love to dominate and destroy you. I mean, I don't have enough confidence probably to, <laughs> to believe that I can do it. Uh-huh. But I think on some level, maybe it would be a mistake to define that as aggression. Because when we uh-huh. think about aggression, what we're really saying is this desire to cause harm, to mm. cause destruction. Mm-hmm. And as much as I want to beat you on the board, it's also about like, I want to impress you. Yes, It doesn't make me feel aggressively towards you as a person. So I wonder if that is a thing that can be compartmentalized. I think, yeah, compartmentalize is an interesting word. The way I was thinking about it is that especially when you play with somebody you care about and respect as a person or... Well, I don't care about you or And I don't respect you, you but... as a person. But <laughs> at least as a chess player, I kind of view these games almost as having this element that in addition to the competitive element, there's a creative element, right? I want to create something. I want to play a game where if I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose in a way where I was left really resoundingly impressed with how I was beaten. Yeah. And in that sense, like I enjoyed being a part of that experience. And so there's that kind of creative thing. It's the mutual masturbation. (laughs) Yeah. It's like that could be the mutual masturbation thing. But there it seems like it's because it's the exact opposite of something like aggression or causing harm. It's because I'm still leaving this experience having been a part of something I could not have created by myself. That is pleasurable or exciting in some way. I would rather be the one who, you know, gave you that feeling than the one who had to receive it, potentially. But it's ultimately a creative act. And so there, I'm not even so much viewing it as we're compartmentalizing this feeling of dominance or something. It's more of saying, no, what we're channeling it into is something that isn't destruction or mind crushing. Yeah, definitely. And I've seen this, I think, going back to the same Gelfand book, weirdly, he talks about his encounters with Aronian and how much he respects Aronian off the board and saying that his thought whenever he knew that he would be playing Aronian at a tournament would be that he always wanted to prepare something nice and be able to have a nice game because he just always wanted to be able to impress Aronian and felt like as much as they could hang out or chat for it, like being able to test out new ideas against each other, that's what really felt like catching up with an old friend. And it's not because like he's not also trying to be Aronian and win the tournament, but because there's this level of understanding that they have this deep ability of creating and exploring and challenging each other in ways that very few people on the planet do. And being able to engage in that, the things that get typed as aggression, the trying to dominate or restrict or exert control are more instruments of this creation than they are the end goal as they might be for like a sociopath like Fisher. Can you say that on the pod? <laughs> um, that Fisher's a sociopath? I don't know. Rest no, in piss. That is really interesting, though. I feel like that's like a good counterpoint. But your original point was, is there also the possibility that channeling that type of aggression or really framing or focusing on that aggression in chess doesn't impact those relations off yeah. the board? Can you feel this way when you're playing and have those feelings totally dissolve once the game is over and you sign the score sheet and shake hands? Yeah, I mean, I can see a lot of things tying into this, and it definitely ties in to one of my core beliefs, which is all chess players need therapy. (laughs) Which is actually very close to my core belief that all people need therapy. (laughs) But I don't believe that all chess players are people. (laughs) Shouts out again, Bobby Fisher. (laughs) That's why we come together and build out this nuance. It's beautiful. But I mean, what's that Duchamp quote? It's like, not all artists are chess players, but all chess players are artists. I kind of feel like not all therapy patients are chess players, but all chess players are therapy patients. Mm -hmm. Not Um, all people are chess players. 
Mm-hmm. But not all chess players are people as well. Not all squares are rectangles, but all rectangles <laughs> are chess therapists. Yeah. <laughs> Julia Rios, rectangle. Okay. But um, when we are talking about chess players and therapy, yeah, I imagine certain people are very good at just understanding this is a game. My desires for dominance or anything have nothing to do with the person. And it's entirely towards the service of this game. And I actually quite like this person. And I'm very happy that we're creating this thing together. I think some people see that or that's kind of what they go to as a default. And other people are probably the opposite end of the spectrum, which is like, you are the enemy. This is a war. And I think that yeah, a lot of people are somewhere in between the two and I think could benefit from like really being able to learn how to untangle those feelings or this competitive desire from the other person or having to view the other person that way. I definitely know people who were a lot nicer to me before I beat them in tournament play and have been less nice to me since then off the board. I also think yeah. in those cases, I'm pretty sure that those people were nice to me because they respected me as a person, but didn't really respect me as a chess player. And so after losing yeah. to me in chess, we're just pissed off in a way that they wouldn't have been if they just actually respected me more as a player instead of thinking that I kept getting lucky. And so that's, that's something too. And maybe that's part of like why it feels bad. It almost feels like if this person is kind of cold to you after you beat them, it's like, oh, you don't view us as having, you know, engaged in this collaborative thing. You view me as an enemy and even worse, a non-worthy adversary. And that kind of mismatch is super uncomfortable. And so I think it would be great to see more people really unpack this idea of why am I viewing myself as trying to destroy this other person and how is that changing my relationship to them? And I think this definitely comes in when we think about gender in chess and also age in chess because um, a lot of adults hate losing to children, I think, because when you think of a worthy adversary in in battle, you don't think of an eight-year-old. And a lot of men, especially of older generations, but also not, don't think of women of any age as a worthy adversary. Wow. That is so true. So I worry that part of the cultural battles we have in chess have to do, I mean, Susan Polgar has that joking quote that I saw come up on Twitter recently. She was like, I've never beat a healthy. healthy. Yeah. There's always an excuse, right? Because it's like this idea of Polgar herself being an adversary or an opponent means that there's some sort of failure of your masculinity essentially in losing this fucking board game because of this view of her as an adversary which results in having to make excuses or be dismissive or say she got lucky or just like make her feel worse or alienate her or the other women and i know that one thing people will do with children is they'll just shrug and be like well you know they're a kid they're going to be 500 points higher rated than me anyways they're probably a prodigy and maybe that's true a lot of the time <laughs> but some of the time it's like no maybe you just got your ass beat by a kid and they're lower rated than you and they've stopped playing chess and they're never going to play again and they're never going to be higher rated. Like not every kid who beat you is Caruana. Some of them are just kids who beat you. So even that sort of, well, they'll be higher rated than me in no time. They're a prodigy is this sort of deflection. And it's not as mean of a deflection as, oh, you got lucky. Or, you know, like if you've seen all the comments of women, teenagers, young teenage girls being told, yeah, oh yeah, you shouldn't wear that to the tournament. You're going to distract the men. And it's horrible because what it's saying is we can't shake ourselves from viewing chess as this battle of adversaries. And we can't shake our sense of masculinity from being tied to being able to vanquish you as an adversary. And so we have to be finding excuses of why you could possibly win at all. Yeah. Beyond the fact that you outplayed me in a game of chess. Yes. 
And how do you think that's going to make people feel who just can't be validated, especially if women are playing chess with this desire to dominate or just at the very least desire to be creating something strategic or something and take pleasure in out strategizing and playing chess well, right? And having that constantly invalidated, do you think that's going to make them feel welcome in that space? Um, do you think they make them come back? Do you think it's going to make them be able to get this pleasure out of it? No. But I'm not necessarily convinced that those individuals who are perpetuating some of mm-hmm. that experience for women or for children necessarily care whether those people feel welcome in that space, right? If, you, if you're coming in with this lens of aggression where you are my adversary, I'm mm-hmm. not looking out mm-hmm. for like the, the mutual beneficial good for everybody in this space. Yeah, yeah. That's such a good point. Because at first I was going to say, sure, but then wouldn't they want to just be able to beat everybody, whoever? But no, you want the people who are the most coded as a worthy adversary. You want the educated, wealthy, white men. Right. To be the people who, you know, you can kick their ass. You know, it's like when Magnus Carlson gave three minute to 30 second odds to Bill Gates and kicked his ass and people were so impressed. It's like, well, Bill Gates just so well fits into this idea of a worthy adversary, but watching him play chess, he's clearly not. <laughs> yeah, truly. But that's the image of who would be sitting across the table. Right. Yeah, but you're totally right. Yeah. The people who want to vanquish their foes, those are that's the foes they want. You're right. They don't want those people in the space. But I think there are a lot of people who are very open in theory to this being a more inclusive space yeah. and a more welcoming space, as long as they don't have to change their behavior or do the work to figure out what behavior it is that they have to change. Yeah. And I think one thing that we've hit on in this conversation is that this idea of having your sense of worth tied to this idea of your ability to dominate and vanquish your opponent um, can contribute, especially also if you have these internalized senses of who a worthy foe is that isn't just someone with a high rating, can contribute to alienating folks from the space. And I think there's a lot of people who would agree on a questionnaire that there should be more women in chess and that the space should be more conducive to women who could reflect on what do they say or do that can be alienating. Yeah. And I know that you and I could come up with a lot of examples. <laughs> that's a whole That's a whole other that's episode. That's a whole other episode. I do have one last question for you on this topic though, which is... Oh, hell yeah. Do you think that our friendship will survive after I beat you in a tournament game for the first time? Um, I think that the real problem is that finally realizing that you are more than a worthy enough adversary for me, (laughs) I question everything about our relationship and whether or not we should really, you know, stop the whole step sibling narrative. You know, there's this real risk. See us as chess colleagues. Yeah. I mean, I look forward to viewing you as my big sister instead of just my little grandpa. (laughs) This will never happen, people, by the way. If anyone's listening, I'm joking. I will never beat JJ in a classical tournament game, but dare to dream. No, but the answer is for any of my close friends who I've worked with on their chess who are lower rated than me, or for any of my students, for them to beat me, especially like to like beat me, beat me in a tournament game, I would be thrilled. Yeah. I believe that JJ, like no question yeah. asked. I, I- I would definitely have all sorts of feelings. I might not want to go out and like talk about the game immediately after, but ultimately, fundamentally, I would be so proud of you. I believe that. I no questions asked. I believe that. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't think that would have been true before years of reflecting on like what the goals and chess are for you totally. and like whether who your opponent is and what they represent in chess or just in general, like what we're trying to do when we compete and like 
I definitely, it's definitely taken a lot of work and reflection to get there, but it makes me a lot happier to know, to know that if we ever played, like I would genuinely be so happy and not just like lose a friend. Cause that would just be very sad. Yeah, I, I think yeah. that it's important that you say that it does require that self-reflection. So Hopefully everyone listening to this will take some time to think about how aggressive you are. <laughs> and is it the right kind of aggression? Is it useful? Are you getting better at chess? Are you making the people around you in your space like you more or less? These are just questions to, to ponder in your free time. And as a reminder, we'll end with a quote by Victor Korchnoi, that the human element, the human flaw, and the human nobility, those are the reasons that chess matches are won or lost. So what he means is everyone should get therapy. <laughs> okay, beautiful. We're cutting it right there. One, one. Yeah. As always, thank you for letting us take you into this deep, dark forest. Where two plus two equals five, and the path leading out is only wide enough for listeners like you. Intro and outro music provided by JPEG Mafia. We would be yeah. truly touched if you subscribe and leave us a glowing review. And tell all of your friends. Yeah, all of them. And every week, we'll be gifting one lucky subscriber who leaves a five-star review a lifetime premium diamond membership to leechess.org. Unlocking all of their features. Even that? Especially that. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ChessFeelsPod. Oh, and if you didn't like what you heard, do not hesitate to message any feedback. No matter how critical or scathing. Directly to Mr. Dodgy, our social media manager, even though he doesn't know it. Uh, chest problem. One. Yeah.